Well, if you would take a Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. Begin with a story about Ritesh and his family who are Christians in India. They've been following Jesus for not very long. The more they learn about Jesus, the more their love for him grows. But they're also being watched. There's a Hindu nationalist organization known as the RSS. The RSS is known for stirring up mobs to intimidate new Christians. Voice of the Martyrs reports that one day, Ritesh arrived home from work to find a large crowd outside his house. And suddenly, some men grabbed Ritesh, his wife, and their children and dragged them to a local temple. Once inside, they were forced to sit down in a row facing ten Hindu leaders. Who do you worship, they demanded, Jesus or the Hindu gods? As the family sat in silence, one of the Hindu leaders clarified their intent. We will kill you if you don't leave Jesus. The men began beating Ritesh and Vanya while the terrified children began to cry. And finally, after several hours of harassment, the Hindu leaders let the family go home. But the ordeal wasn't over. People outside the temple had told police that Ritesh was a criminal who converted his family to Christianity, so the authorities soon arrived to arrest him. After Ritesh was taken to jail, the Hindu leaders continued to intimidate Vanya, suggesting that her husband could be killed the next day and she would have no one to take care of her and the children. They again ordered her to return to Hinduism. And just put yourself in their shoes. Imagine the mob. Imagine the beating. Imagine the intimidation. Imagine the children. And imagine the fears you might face. Is what I'm saying about Jesus this true? Is it it this real? What if they kill us? What if they hurt our kids? Does God see me? Does God know what's happening here? Vanya was ordered to return to Hinduism. But she told them no. Ritesh suffered in jail, but he told them no. The children also told them no. The whole family stayed faithful to Jesus. In the face of such fears, how does anybody stay faithful? How do we stay faithful to Jesus in the face of so many fears that are included in his mission? It's an important question we all need to consider. It may not be that you're dragged before authorities, but you live in a culture increasingly opposed to Christianity. 
Increasingly intimidating and pressuring those who uphold the Bible's morality. In our passage, Jesus shows us how to stay faithful. He shows us how to replace fear with bold witness. Let's hear the words of our Lord in verse 24. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. We find here a fourth time that Jesus describes opposition the disciples will face. And then he, he then teaches them how to respond in each case. Last week, the first one we saw was sheep in the midst of wolves, and then Jesus taught us, so be wise and innocent. And then in verse 17, he, he said, men will deliver you over, and then he taught, don't be anxious. Then in verse 21, he said, brother will deliver brother to death. And then Jesus taught about endurance. In today's passage, he describes the opposition once again, but this time he addresses various fears. Three times we hear these words, have no fear. Verse 26, do not fear. Verse 28, and then fear not. Verse 31. And that structure sets the course for us today. We'll we'll start again with Jesus describing the opposition in verses 24 and 25, and, and then we'll look at three ways that Jesus helps us replace fear with bold witness. And so let's begin by considering how Jesus describes the opposition in verses 24 and 25. To help them understand why they will face opposition, Jesus draws from A couple of analogies, a disciple, he says, is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Now, they themselves were disciples of Jesus. A disciple is one who sits beneath his his teacher as a learner, as, as one who wishes to become like his teacher. And they would also know the place of a servant, Right? His point here isn't to speak to injustices that some servants may have faced at the hands of dominant masters. Rather, he has the more ideal relationship in view. One more like we find in Luke chapter 17, verse 10, where the servant says to his master, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And so also here, Jesus notes how a servant isn't above his, his master. Rather, he goes on, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher 
and the servant like his master. And we see here the goal in life isn't to become better than Jesus. There is no one better than Jesus. The goal is to become like Jesus. It is enough for the disciples to be like his teacher. But what Jesus explains here is that the more we share in Jesus' likeness, the more we should expect to share in Jesus' sufferings. He says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Well, who's the master of the house here? It's Jesus, right? And the opposition has called Jesus Beelzebul, which we know later from chapter 12, verse 24, is the prince of demons. And so here's the Messiah of Israel. Here's the long-awaited king bringing the kingdom, reversing the curse, healing the sick, casting out evil, and people are pointing the finger at him and saying, you're Beelzebul. You, You are Satan. What blasphemy this is. But if that's how they treated the master, his disciples should expect no less. Consistent across the New Testament is is that to to share in Jesus' likeness is also to share in Jesus' sufferings. We we can think about Stephen, for example, in the book of Acts, right, where where Stephen serves like Jesus. And then he proclaims boldly the scriptures like Jesus. But what happens to to Stephen? Luke, Luke sets it up so nicely for us because he he, he talks about how Stephen was accused of blasphemy, and then he was attacked by false witnesses, and then he stands before the Sanhedrin, and then he gets killed outside the city, and while he's getting killed, he even asks that God would forgive those of his, the, the, the things that his enemies are doing to him. And the point for us is to see the parallel between Stephen's life and Jesus' life. That union with Christ doesn't stop with the benefits of salvation like forgiveness of sins and justification by faith. It also means union with Christ and suffering. I wonder, is that in mind when, when you were singing earlier the line, O oh Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be my only boast is you. In any way you choose, Father. If it means you choose for them to malign me, I will boast in Christ. If it means you choose for them to fire me for standing on the gospel, I will boast in Christ. If it means you choose that I suffer greatly in the path of love, I will still sing hallelujah. All I have is Christ. We need to be there when we sing these words. If not, if we're not there, Jesus' words will help get you there. You're not above your master. It's enough that you become like Jesus. And that will mean sharing in his sufferings, facing the same kinds of opposition that he faced. But that's not all Jesus tells us. Jesus also teaches his disciples how to respond. And in this case, he teaches them how to respond to various fears. He he shows them how to replace fear with bold witness. Jesus is so patient, 
so, so kind in his teaching of the disciples. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure they're afraid. I mean, you get afraid when somebody says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. But even before they start facing these fears, Jesus reassures them and gives them courage to stay the course. I also love how Jesus here addresses various fears. Right? We, we, don't all, we don't all get scared for the same reasons. And one time we might get scared for this reason, and in another context we get scared for a different reason. And Jesus, Jesus addresses fear here from several different angles, and if we take his words to heart, the Spirit will help us to replace fear with bold witness. And so first, we learn that we can replace fear with bold witness because the truth of God's kingdom will become plain. The truth of God's kingdom will become plain. Verse 26. So have no fear of them, for, and here's the reason not to fear, nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Now what might Jesus be talking about? Right. Well, what's currently covered? What's, what's currently hidden that will be known? Well, one clue comes in verse 27. He says, what I tell you in the dark. That sounds like something that's hidden, isn't it? What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So what's Hidden, in verse 26, has to do with what I tell you in verse 27. That is, what Jesus is teaching and revealing to his disciples privately. And what has that been? Well, he's been teaching them about the kingdom of God. And they're supposed to proclaim that teaching publicly, shout it from the housetops, he says. Earlier in chapter 10, verse 7, that's exactly what he tells them to do. Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Another clue comes later in chapter 13, verse 11, where Jesus speaks in parables to, to all the crowds, but then in private, in the dark, so to speak, Jesus explains the parables to his disciples. And he says this, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And so I think Jesus has in mind here the unfolding revelation of God's kingdom. Earlier he said the kingdom of God is near, it's at hand, because Jesus the King is present. But a fuller manifestation of that kingdom was coming. It was coming with his death and his resurrection from the dead. And so don't fear, he's saying, don't fear what you're saying is less true when others start to malign you. Don't fear that what you're saying won't be supported by the facts just because you haven't seen it all yet. The kingdom is coming. The revelation of Jesus' kingdom in history will vindicate His people. The kingdom of God will come, and no one will be able to question the truthfulness of what you are saying. Jesus was saying these things to the disciples before His resurrection. We have the privilege of reading these things after His resurrection. After the gift of the Holy Spirit. After the rise of the church. 
And we're in the middle of this gospel spreading to all nations, just as Jesus said. Everything he revealed about the kingdom has come to pass so far. None of Jesus' words have failed. All of them will eventually happen. And when he finally splits the sky to judge the earth, the world will know. There will be no questioning. Everyone will know and see that you announced the truth. And so don't hesitate to speak about the kingdom. One of the greatest tragedies of fear is that it keeps others from hearing the gospel. To shut up God's word is a great tragedy. I mean, we could think of, think of some of the lowest points in Israel's history where the word of the Lord was rare in those days. We can think of the awful curse of Amos chapter 8 when the Lord sends a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, but of hearing the words of the Lord. We can think of how the nations in Isaiah are pictured. They're, they're all sitting in, dark, in the darkness of their depravity without hope. Why? Because they do not know the truth of God's word. The greatest tragedy is not the suffering of the church. It is the silence of the church, whether we are suffering or not. Everyone is lost without the gospel. And the only hope for salvation is that they hear the message about God sending His Son to die for sinners, that Jesus came to fulfill the will of His Father, offer Himself as an atonement for sin, and then rise from the dead according to the Scriptures. And that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Faith comes by hearing that message. And so Jesus tells his disciples, his disciples, don't let fear stifle this message about the kingdom of God. You must, you, you may not see all of its fullness yet. There may be things about the slow progress of its growth that you don't understand, but nothing is covered that will not be revealed. It's true. You will see it for yourself. So spread it far and wide. Tell it to everybody. The reality of God's kingdom and history will vindicate you. The final day will reveal all. And so don't fear the opposition. Replace your fears with bold proclamation because the truth of God's kingdom will become plain. Next, we learn that we need not fear the opposition because God's wrath is greater than man's. God's wrath is greater than man's. Verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Basically, don't compromise your witness to avoid the world's wrath. God's wrath is far greater. But that's the temptation, isn't it? The temptation is, is to so fear what other people can do to us, what other people can say about us, that we compromise our witness. I remember sitting down with one of our missionaries in, in Turkey, and we had drove to a local mall to meet with a new believer, and he had recently been baptized. And the one thing he feared most was returning to his family. And that was the first time I realized that sometimes our missionaries were baptizing people 
and that might be the last time they see them. They come up out of the waters, they celebrate the Lord's Supper together, they go home, and they're killed or arrested. But as we talked, I remember our brother, Billy, directing this new believer to passages like this one, showing him how how people may do awful things, but God has your soul. All they can kill is your body. God is greater. He can, Jesus says, He can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, more recently, some have argued that to destroy here conveys the idea of annihilation. That instead of eternal torment, the person's body and soul eventually cease to exist. But this approach reads a narrow definition into every use of the term. Just one chapter earlier in Matthew chapter 9, verse 17, for example, the same word applied to wineskins being destroyed. The point wasn't that they ceased to exist, but that they no longer fulfill their intended purpose. They exist in a ruined state. Also, we mustn't forget how we, what we saw in Revelation chapter 20 and how chapter 20 of Revelation describes the final punishment of the wicked in hell. And it is not just one of irreversible ruin. It is also one it describes as torment forever and ever. God's wrath is greater. God deserves our utmost allegiance, not man. We must fear God more than people. In his book, When People Are Big and God is Small, Ed Welch describes the fear of the Lord as reverent submission that leads to obedience. Reverent submission that leads to obedience. Fear of man may be one of the biggest hindrances to preaching the gospel. Fear of man is one of the biggest hindrances of obedience of all sorts. It paralyzes love. It hinders openness with one another. It leads to poor leadership. It puts other people's opinions of us in the place of God. And the only solution to the fear of man is the fear of God. Now, that's not to say we don't face the truth about the difficult and even intimidating circumstances we might face. Friday morning, I was reading Psalm 142, and it says, Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. This is David. David wasn't denying his fears. He confessed his fears and asked God's help. The apostles never lived in denial of their fears either. Some, some, sometimes we, we find them praying for God to overcome their fear and then give them boldness to go on speaking. And so it's not that we ignore the truth about how scary things might really get for us. Rather, the fears we do face are given their proper perspective before a grand vision of God. Awe of God is the solution to the fear of man. Awe of God will help you be like Peter in Acts 5.29. The authorities threaten him. And he says, we must obey God rather than men. Peter said that. The guy that had two little servant girls come up and say, isn't this the guy that goes with Jesus? 
And he lies to get out of the jam. And then the bystanders come up and they do the same. And he lies to get out of the jam. He's afraid of what they might do to him. What changed for Peter? What gave Peter such boldness? His awe of the resurrected Lord Jesus. Nothing was the same after that. His awe of Christ emboldened him. Perhaps you've been timid to share the gospel. Perhaps you're already wondering like what that next conversation is going to look like when you finally tell that friend or, or that family member or that coworker or that spouse that Jesus is the exclusive Savior of the world and that they must call on, his na- call on His name to be saved. Perhaps you're anticipating not just how awkward things might get in the room, but, but how you might lose your relationship or how you might lose your reputation, reputation or how you might lose your position at work. But to be scared into silence, to be scared into compromise, to let the fear of people's opinions control you means that your vision of God is way too small. Jesus' point is that God is greater. The only way you will find boldness to keep speaking and keep obeying is by rekindling your awe of God. And then lastly, we can replace fear with bold witness because God's fatherly care is present in every circumstance. God's fatherly care is present in every circumstance. Verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You're of more value than many sparrows. Now, in this example, we're reminded first of God's providence. God's providence isn't just mere sovereignty. It has a very good purpose behind behind it. he's He's moving things towards a good end. Question 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, What do you understand by the providence of God? And the answer comes, the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, Riches and poverty, indeed all things, come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. God is not detached from creation. He's involved in every detail. And Jesus is saying here that God's providence extends not just to great cosmic realities, but to the smallest insignificant bird that falls from the sky. Not one of them will fall to the ground without your father. If suffering comes, it comes not apart from our Father, but by the will of our Father. All your circumstances, no matter how hard they get, happen according to the beneficent outworking of God's plan. 
But his point is more than just providence here. It's also intimate knowledge, God's, God's thoughtful concern for, for things we'd usually deem insignificant. Not only does he mention sparrows, he says, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. That's not many for some of us. Nevertheless, God has numbered all of them. There is an expression used several times in the Old Testament that it's that of a single hair falling to the ground. And normally it appears in contexts where a superior is guaranteeing uh, that someone will live. So they might say something like, not a hair of your head will fall to the ground. I think we're supposed to connect these, these two statements here about the sparrow falling to the ground and our hairs being numbered. Meaning, if a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground, apart from God's permission, neither will a single hair on your head. If the hairs on your head are all numbered, then not a single one will fall apart from God's knowledge. He knows us and sees us as fully. Every detail that's happening in your life, He already knows it, and He is near to you in it. You know, in suffering, one thing that can lead to fear is feeling like God is absent. You, you begin wondering if God knows what, what you're suffering and, and if God sees you. And Jesus' point is, yes, He sees you. He knows you. All, all your hairs on your head are numbered. Even more, though, in addition to His providence and knowledge, we hear in Jesus' words about God's fatherly presence and concern. I'm a father of four wonderful children. I'm the barber to my two boys. I don't know how many numbers of hair they have. God is a better father. He knows all. Did, did you notice how Jesus in this passage throughout, he just keeps using the language of father. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He didn't just say, apart from God. Is apart from your father, the one who governs the universe, Jesus calls him, he, he keeps calling them your father, Call, calling him your father for these disciples. How does God become your father? Well, elsewhere, the Bible says that we're born children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So how do we become children of God? Well, God makes us His children through the work of Jesus. If you're united to Jesus, God becomes your Father. Galatians 4, 5 says that God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, meaning under the law's curse, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Ephesians 2.19 says that Christ reconciled us to God through the cross such that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are members of the household of God. Romans 8 talks about how we have received the spirit of adoption, and when, we, and when that spirit of adoption comes into us, what do we cry? Abba, Father, right? It is in Christ that God becomes our Father. 
If you are his child, then he cares for you. I mean, if he shows this kind of concern for sparrows, think of how great his concern is for those who bear his image. Think, think even greater of how, how greater his concern is for those that he has redeemed, that he gave up his only son for to bring him to himself. Jesus says to his disciples, Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than, than many sparrows. This is kind of a pattern, isn't it? We saw this earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, where God talks about him, I mean, where, where Jesus talks about God feeding the birds. And he says, How much more value are you to God than, to, than these birds? And we're seeing the same thing here. In our sufferings, God is present as Father to care for us. He is not far off and aloof. He is near and involved in every detail. And so go to Him. Ask Him for strength. Rest in His hands. You know, Jesus doesn't say these things to us without walking this road first. He doesn't say these things without being able to sympathize with your weakness. Let's not forget the way of our Lord. Let's not forget that He spoke these words to His disciples and then He lived them. It was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane facing the full weight of betrayal and opposition. It was Jesus offering in those moments before His cross what Hebrews says were loud cries and tears. But all the while, He knew His Father was near. My Father, He prayed... If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Father, if this can, cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Who's with him in the garden? The Father. It was Jesus who told his disciples, The hour is coming when you will all be scattered and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. It was Jesus who, when He suffered, did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. And who was that? It was His Father. And it was Jesus who, when His work for us was finished, said, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. The Father is with Him in the garden. He's with Him in the beatings. He's with Him on the cross. He's with Him through death. And He's with Him in raising Him from the dead. And so when we consider Jesus who went before us, we, we see that the Father will not forsake us in suffering. The Father draws near in our sufferings. He knows the number of, of your hairs. Not one of them will perish without His providence, knowledge, and fatherly concern. With Christ, you can replace fear with bold witness. God's kingdom will become plain. God is greater than man. And God's fatherly care is present in every circumstance. With Christ, you too can say, not my will, but yours be done. Ritesh, Vanya, and their children stayed faithful to Jesus 
They resisted the RSS and spoke boldly for Jesus. Eventually, the police let Ritesh and his family go. Neighbors and friends may never accept them again, but Voice of the Martyrs reports that that they helped them find a new home where they are safe. They also provided Ritesh with a rickshaw so he can better support his family as a rickshaw driver. Ritesh occasionally sees some of his former persecutors when they use his rickshaw services. But they usually stay quiet when they recognize him. And he simply shows them love because he wants them to know the love of Christ that has given him peace with God. May the Lord strengthen us the same way to make known the love of Jesus Christ boldly and without fear. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for various examples of bold witness. Examples like Stephen and Paul, Peter, but also examples like Ritesh and Vanya, countless others throughout history, where we have witnessed and read about your fatherly presence in those circumstances. Whatever we might face this coming week, whatever awkward conversation comes up about Jesus, whatever ways you might see fit to help us stand boldly on Jesus' morality when others are mocking us and teasing us about it. Whatever, whatever the case, Lord, uh, whatever kind of opposition comes, give the Christians in this room, give them boldness. In the midst of their fears, help them cry out to you and remind them that the kingdom will make it plain, that God is greater, and that your fatherly care will be with them to the end. Amen.